Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host, Tom Wheeler of the Environmental Protection Information Center, or EPIC. Joining me by video call is my colleague and friend, Scott Greeson of Friends of the Eel River. Hi, Scott. Hey, Tom. And also joining us remotely by video call is a very special guest, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome, Congressman. Hi, guys. All right. So we have a lot of things that we could talk about. I, I know that whenever Scott and I get your ear, we like to talk to you about wilderness and Potter Valley. But given the moment, I think it's appropriate that we start with COVID-19. So, Congressman, are, are you happy with the federal response from the Trump administration and from Congress to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, we could probably fill up a whole show on this subject, but, you know, the short answer is it, it was a very bungled initial response. And part of the chaos and the catching up that we're doing right now is, is a direct result of some some real stubbornness and incompetence that set us back probably at least six weeks in responding to this pandemic. Do I feel like they finally get it? Well, I think so. And yet, even now, you have things like the Defense Production Act that could be invoked to quickly address shortages of certain supplies that are going to become acute in our healthcare system. And we have an administration that just doesn't want to take that kind of action because they're afraid that the private sector will see it as too heavy handed. So I guess that's a long-winded way to say, no, I'm not at all satisfied by the way our government has handled it. On the other hand, I see some pretty incredible leadership from governors, from local public health leaders, from nonprofit service providers and others. So, you know, you, you get a little bit of the good and the bad in the way we've stepped up here. So the federal government has invoked the Defense Production Act, but has not utilized the law, with Trump specifically declining to use the law, citing his disinclination to nationalize our businesses. How would you like the federal government to more explicitly utilize the Defense Production Act? Well, it's it's pretty straightforward. We know we have an acute shortage of ventilators and masks and probably some other uh, sanitary equipment for healthcare providers, you simply reach out to the private sector entities that have the ability to mass produce this stuff and you tell them to do it. I don't know why our president is afraid to do that. And, you know, he would rather kind of wave his hands and talk about, you know, how great it is that Walmart and CVS are restocking toilet paper and try to take credit for that. So I, I, I completely disagree with the, the sort of genteel way in which he deals with corporate America. And I think it's having an impact on our frontline healthcare workers. Yeah, my sister is a nurse in a Bellingham hospital who you know, came on shift two days ago to find no masks available at all. Yeah, so it's hitting. Yeah. So we also have, on top of the pandemic itself, which is causing a lot of concern for folks like Scott and myself, we have elderly parents who may be more compromised by this disease, given some of their pre-existing conditions. We also have an economic impact from all of this that is also affecting many of our loved ones. What can you say to people who are concerned about the economy and who might think somewhat along the lines of President Trump that the the cure is worse than the symptoms. I think that's a very dangerous way to look at this crisis. 
And it, it reflects a continuing disconnect, really, between the facts and the science and the public health experts and a, a president who is myopically focused on things like the stock market and his approval rating and the fact that he was counting on running for re-election on this booming economy that has suddenly gone off a cliff. I think the best thing we can do is to just acknowledge that when you have a pandemic with these kind of impacts, you're going to have a huge economic contraction. It's unavoidable. But if we are truthful about that, and if government steps in and provides support to the people who need it, that's the fastest way that we can get things back on track. But look, it starts with the pandemic. There's no amount of Federal Reserve stimulus or arm waving about the stock market that is going to enable people to get back to work or to remove the social distancing requirements that, that we're imposing. That's what's grinding the economy to a halt. And so if you're not focused on that as the very top priority, you're already missing something and you're actually setting the economy back further. Congressman, for the last decade or so, environmentalists have been pushing hard for, for deep changes in our economy and really our culture to try to address the threat of climate change. And we've been told over and over again, we can't afford that. The kind of changes you're advocating for would be catastrophic. They'd completely disrupt our society. And yet here we are. We've just learned in the course of the last couple of weeks that we can, in fact, make tremendous changes in the course of a very brief amount of time, that we can, if we need to, turn around and, and face a real threat. How do you see these two crises coming together? Well, we definitely have two simultaneous crises. The, the climate crisis is not going away just because we're preoccupied with this pandemic. And I, I think the way I'm trying to look at it, Scott, is for a moment here, we're going to have an opportunity to do some big and bold things that cost a lot of money and bring a lot of government resources to bear. Let's do it in a way that at least advances the climate challenge as we fight to defeat this pandemic. And let's certainly not set us back on the climate challenge. You've got the Trump administration actively lobbying to bail out big oil in this moment, which is, you know, the probably the best example of how not to respond to this crisis without deepening the climate crisis. I think we can do a lot better than that. I think we can do the, the clean energy tax extenders. That's an economic stimulus, and it's the right kind of economic stimulus. I think we can look at a really big and bold infrastructure package and, and make sure that it's very green. There's just all kinds of ways in which we can do that. The airline industry, is desperate for a bailout right now. And they're one of the toughest, aviation is one of the toughest sectors when it comes to meeting climate goals. So what a great opportunity to ask them to do some things that actually promote clean aviation fuels and reduce their climate footprint while we give them a helping hand and you know try to, try to save them from, from blinking out. So the Republican Party and their economic response has suggested some direct payments to American citizens. This is somewhat reminiscent of Andrew Yang's universal basic income proposal. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson has, has suggested that the era of big government is back and that both parties are going to embrace it to resolve problems. 
do you see any shifting political winds or priorities with the Republican Party or with the Democratic Party in response to COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. You've just referenced some of them. The fact that you've got, you know, Larry Kudlow, of all people, and, and Donald Trump talking about sending everybody a check from Uncle Sam. That is a, about as socialist as anything I can think of. But we're in a socialist moment, okay? So everybody's kind of finding their, their inner socialist right now. What we don't want is to have corporate socialism that is really kleptocracy hijacking this moment. And I think there's a real danger in that happening. I'm for getting money immediately out to the Americans who most need it. I don't want to send plutocrats a check. They don't need it. But I do want to send everybody within a, a reasonable financial threshold some help. And it, it needs to be a lot more than $1,000 when you think about what they're going through right now and what's coming in the weeks ahead. We need to avoid wide-scale evictions and mortgage foreclosures and the closing up of every small business that's hit by this thing. I mean, the, the potential for another Great Depression is just enormous. So you have to think very big in terms of the, the safety net response that's needed in this moment. And don't worry about labels like socialism. Just watch out for corporations and special interests trying to fleece the U.S. taxpayers and exploit this moment. So we're talking to you from your house in California today. What What is it like in the Capitol? Are your staffers reporting to work? They're not. For the most part, I, all of my staff is working remotely from their homes. There are, I'm told there's some people in the Capitol. I haven't been there in, in almost two weeks, but obviously the Senate is in session. You know, uh, everybody's hanging around with Rand Paul and sharing germs, <laughs> I guess swimming in the pools that are supposed to be closed. So yeah, all that's happening in the Senate. In the House, I know that our leadership is physically there. So Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, a small group of others, because they are developing, independent of these Senate negotiations, they're developing a third wave of House uh, of legislation from the House. And then we're just doing a ton of conference calls. I have never participated in so many conference calls in my life. And you can imagine what it's like when just the Democratic caucus has, you know, over 230 members and you're all on a conference call. And, you know, a lot of us probably like to talk more than we should. So it's highly inefficient. It's not an ideal way to run a caucus or a Congress, but we're starting to figure it out. There's been talk of remote voting for Congress. Is, is that something that you still hear talk about? I'm hearing more and more talk about it. And I think the the Rand Paul testing and the fact that I've got two of my house colleagues now that are COVID-19 positive, there's a lot of nervousness about, you know, bringing everybody together into that Petri dish again. So probably we will, I think, need to to move to something like that. I, I want to get kind of one, one human interesty question in here, which is, so you're stuck at home too, Congressman. I, I saw that you recently visited the Point Reyes National Seashore. Um, you Instagrammed about it. So what what else can you recommend for people who are bored at home? Let's give them some recommendations. Do you have a, a favorite book that you would love people to read? Well, I, I wish I had as many guitars as you there, Tom, because you know I'd be brushing up on my Jack Johnson licks and doing all kinds of things. So you, look, the, the Point Reyes trip 
on Saturday was a bit of a disaster. So let me share that with you. I consider the Point Reyes National Seashore to be essentially my local beach. I consider myself part of that community. And so naturally, it seemed that since enjoying the outdoors safely with social distance is still allowed under the shelter-in-place orders, I thought, what better thing to do than find a remote beach family for a walk? And boy, was I wrong. I think everybody in the greater Bay Area had the same idea. Uh, and so <laughs> every trailhead and parking lot and, you know, public space was just jammed with visitors. And that doesn't work in the time of COVID-19. We we don't want to see that kind of crowding. Now, I, I maintain my social distance. We went out of our way and eventually found, you know, a quiet place. But I saw people crowding into public restrooms. I saw parking lots jam-packed. There's no way that social distance was maintained with, with all of that crowd. And locals were just apoplectic, as you could imagine, at these hordes of people that were coming into their community, making it hard for them to go out and walk their dog and worried about, you know, just the general implications of all of it. So there was a lot to learn from this weekend in, in a place like West Marana. I don't know if you saw any of those pressures in, in Humboldt County or not. We see folks from the Bay Area actually coming up here to escape and to be in a, a less populated area. So we're, we're seeing some p- potential disease vectors coming our way. So There's no room in Humboldt, folks. Yeah. You're listening to the Eco News Report. Joining us by Skype is Congressman Jared Huffman. We're talking about COVID-19 and his environmental priorities in Congress. So, uh, Congressman, any other recommendations of, of books or shows to binge watch while folks are, are staying at home? Wow. He's going to say C-SPAN. You know, no. I, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a great book to read. It's by a guy in, in my district who actually was in charge of eradicating the smallpox epidemic. His name is Larry Brilliant. And the name of the book is called Sometimes Brilliant. And it's basically his autobiography. He's a very interesting guy, lives in Mill Valley. And he was like the the traveling physician for the band of merry pranksters, you know, Kim Kesey and the psychedelic bus and that whole group. So it's a window into a really interesting time of history with the Grateful Dead and all that. Wavy Gravy, you know, was was part of that whole scene. You may remember that a group of indigenous folks took over Alcatraz Island and I think it was like 1969. And uh, there was a person that was part of that occupation that actually gave birth on Alcatraz during the takeover. Larry Brilliant was the doctor that was brought in to perform the birth. So he's just been on the spot in these really fascinating moments of history. And he and Wavy Gravy and, and others made their way to this ashram in India in the early 70s, where his guru basically in his dying breath told him, you will eradicate smallpox from the planet Earth. And he didn't know anything about contagions or public health, but at the, the dying behest of his guru, he decided to show up on the door, basically, of the United Nations. And he became an intern and worked his way up the ladder and Pretty soon he was in charge of the global effort to eradicate smallpox, and he did it. And now he consults on things like the movie Contagion, and you'll see him on CNN all the time. So go grab the book, Sometimes Brilliant, and you won't regret it. 
I thank you, Congressman, for that recommendation. And I have to say, last time I had you on the show, you recommended to me a TV series turn about spies in the American Revolution. And I went home and I binge watched all two or three seasons of it. And it was fantastic. So can't stop watching that one. Yeah, it's a good one. So that that's my recommendation from you. All right, Scott, let's let's get back to normalcy. Let's talk about environmental issues. Well, so, I don't know about normalcy, but I just I want to track a few things that have actually been happening thanks to Congressman Huffman's work. A key one is the big public lands bill that you just got through the House. Tell us a little bit about that and what you think yeah, the prospects so, uh, are getting passed. As, as you guys know, and many of the folks you work with know, I have a district that is very rich in, in public land resources. And not long after I got elected, some folks who advocate for wilderness came to me and said, we'd like you to do a big and ambitious wilderness bill. And I, I challenged them. I certainly am interested in doing that, but I challenged them to, to try to do something that's more than just wilderness, to try to do something that looks more broadly at our public lands and certainly good stewardship for wildlife and environmental values. But what can we do for the economies of these gateway communities near public lands? What can we do for fire resiliency? Let's think about a broader public lands package. And it took a long time. It was about six years in the making, but we came up with a bill that really is, I'm very excited about it because it checks all of those boxes. It brings a lot to North Coast communities that have these public lands economically, the recreation economy, fire resiliency, salmon restoration, cleaning up of trespass marijuana sites. All of that is in this bill, and, it, and it's at a very ambitious scale. So thankfully, we, we passed the bill out of the House. Along the way, I collected some Republican votes in committee, which you don't see very often for a wilderness bill. So I think that speaks to the hard work we've done to get this thing right. And for the most part, it's been very broad local support. The issue is a little more divisive in some communities than others. And so, you know, Trinity County, I, I feel like still is almost split down the middle in terms of folks who recognize the need to do these things and others who, you know, still feel like we're overprotecting public lands and we're continuing to, to try to reach out and, and bring people along in Trinity. But I feel good about where we are. Kamala Harris has introduced the same bill in the Senate, and we'll look for opportunities now to, you know, the way these things go is you try to attach them to a big public lands package whenever that window opens, and we'll see when that is. That's great. One of the real themes in, you know, federal forest management over the last 20 years has been this tension between, on the one hand, our desire to protect habitat protect wilderness, roadless areas, you know, key watersheds for fisheries. And there's been a lot of argument from especially Republicans that doing that makes it harder to fight fires. And obviously wildfires are now an enormous, you know, growing issue with climate change in this part of the world. And we've just had our driest February on record. You know, how does your approach work? You know, can we protect our wildlands and still fight fires. Well, deal first fire. of all, live with fire. Really, the, you know. the notion that wilderness—the notion that wilderness—is somehow to blame for these fires—that that just doesn't check out factually. And I would encourage folks to to look a little deeper into that. There's nothing in the Wilderness Act or in any of our management 
protocols for wilderness that prevents you from going in, even with, you know, dozers and ripping fire lines, if you need to do that to protect public health and safety. Can both property. Yeah. So you can do that. It's just not something you want to do unless you're facing that kind of a, a catastrophe because you want to leave wilderness areas alone. But wilderness has been vilified, I think, in ways that don't check out factually when it comes to this fire issue. I think those who have said things like this will also have a hard time finding fault with my bill because we have, for example, a, a 600,000 acre special restoration area in the South Fork Trinity and the Mad River watersheds where we're calling for active forest treatment as part of restoring very unhealthy plantation forests that were replanted in, in ways that, as you guys know, are not very healthy and are very susceptible to, to wildfire. So the goal here is to make these areas healthier forest lands, but also to actually improve fire resiliency quite a bit and generate some local economic activity along the way. Scott, want to talk Potter Valley Project? Sure. I guess I should ask you a question. We've been working pretty hard for the last couple of years to try to find a way to get to a deal that will remove at least one of the dams on the Upper Eel River and a deal that would maintain diversions over to the Russian River to Potter Valley and the Sonoma Water Agency. Your leadership has really been critically important to getting us to this point. What do you see our prospects are for getting to a deal? Well, thanks for that. And, and thanks for being in the room and, and part of that. You know, in, in some ways, I, I think we can feel very good about how far we've come. The fact that we have this ad hoc group of really diverse stakeholder interests that's held together for a couple of years now around this premise of uh, co-equal goals, of providing that fish passage improvement and, and salmon and steelhead restoration opportunity on the eel, but doing it in a way that preserves water supply reliability in the Russian basin. Right. It is very doable to pull this off. But as you get into the details, you know, the deal making becomes progressively harder the closer you get to that, that magic moment when you got to define the project specifically and cut the deal. And that's right. sort of where we are right now. We're a few weeks away from a FERC deadline that requires these parties who've, who've actually entered into an agreement to try to do this together to get specific about what they're trying to do and to define the project. And I can just tell you without, without getting into too many sensitive particulars, Scott, I have been doing a lot of shuttle diplomacy to try to nudge folks forward. It's hard. It's scary for folks in the Russian River Basin, for example, who for 100 years have relied on these diversions. The idea of that suddenly being shut off is real scary to them. And by the way, a lot of them have had really cheap or free water as, as a result of that diversion. And so, you know, they're trying to get their heads around what they may be asked to contribute as part of that. Over on the eel side, all of our analysis so far suggests removing Scott Dam is feasible. We've gotten good news back from the sediment studies that suggest that there's nothing toxic behind Scott Dam. The folks who've been looking at fish passage have essentially concluded that this is the only way to achieve the fish passage goal is to actually take out the dam. But they, they've looked at alternatives. They've looked at elaborate fish ladders and trap and haul and all kinds of 
you know, curtain systems that, that some have used up in the Pacific Northwest. None of it really works in this particular setting, certainly not cost effectively. And so I think on the fish side, we're, we're defaulting to Scott Dam removal as probably the only way to achieve that particular goal. And it's just going to have to be paired with some pretty specific water supply assurances for the Russian River side. But I think we can get there. And, and you know, we'll know, I think, in the next month. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Congressman, we have about a minute left with you. When we do get back to normal, whenever that is, what are going to be your priorities in Congress? So the, the climate crisis didn't go away while we were dealing with all of this. I'm on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and our, our report was due at the end of this month. Now, we've bumped that back by a couple of weeks, and I got a draft copy of the report sitting right over there. I don't know if you can see it right there. Yep. So uh, I'm, I'm making my way through a dog-eared copy of a multi-hundred-page draft report from the, the select committee. And when we get back to normal, we're going to be able to refocus on that because that's, that's the next thing for me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Congressman, for joining the Eco News Report. And stay safe out there. All right. Thanks. You too. Take care, guys. You bye-bye. too. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Eco News Report. Thank you to Congressman Jared Huffman for joining us on the show today. And thank you to KZZH for all of their support in making this issue possible. Join us on this time and channel next week for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.